0: I'm Tyler and back with me today to answer all of your pressing Georgia Bulldogs and Georgia Bulldogs adjacent questions is my co-host Curtis. It might not quite yet be football season, but we are certainly not short of news to discuss. We've got a potential radical change to the college football playoff, recent developments on the recruiting front, another transfer, a new track coach, and much more to discuss today. But before we do all of that, I just want to take a second to thank everyone out there who has supported the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform it is that you guys consume our content on. I know most of you listen to us on Apple Podcasts. We know we have some Spotify people out there as well. We have some Podbean people still. We got people all over the place. So it is very much appreciated and guys, it really does. It helps us keep this thing rolling. So if you haven't done that already, rate, review, subscribe to the show, and you still enjoy the podcast, it would be awesome if you would help us out by just clicking a few buttons. And who knows, maybe if you, even if you have an extra minute or so, sh- sharing your thoughts on the podcast with a review. We really, really do, guys. We need all the five star ratings and reviews that we can get. Apple, we said this last week, they kind of changed their podcast interface a little bit. I'm still kind of getting used to it myself. And now instead of rounding anything above a 4.5 rating, just up to five, they are rating podcasts by the 10th of a point. So we are sitting there at a 4.8, which is actually really good. And like, we're really excited about that. But still saying that, we'd love to push that up to a 4.9 or as high as we can get. However, however high we can go, that's what we want to do. And we need your help to do that. And you can also help us, in an, easy, an even easier way to help us is just to help us spread the word about the podcast. Tell your friends, your family, coworkers, tell the mailman, Uber drivers, random guys on the street, anyone and everyone that you see out there, tell them about the podcast. Every little bit helps. So thank you guys all for that in advance. But all right, we've got a lot of questions to get to today. We got about forty-five minutes before Curtis has got to get out of here. He's got he started his second internship next week. He's heading out of town tonight, so we got about forty-five minutes of a window to record here. So we're gonna go ahead and hop right to it. Let's jump right in. Obviously, the news that has been the major topic of conversation for every college fan over the past week. It doesn't really matter what team you root for, what conference you root for, where you're located. Every college football fan has been focused on the, the proposal from the playoff working group to the college playoff management committee that the playoffs expand to a 12-team playoff. I'm sure you've all heard all the details over the last week or so, so I don't want to bore you with that. You've heard plenty of discussion on this subject already. So we don't we just don't want to rehash every single element of it, but we did get a few questions on the topic, so we don't want to ignore those. We want to, we want to discuss this to at least some degree here at the outset of the episode, but being a Georgia podcast like we are, we're going to start with a, our own little twist on this. We're going to start with a Georgia-centric question when it comes to the potential playoff expansion to 12 teams. So Curtis, we're going to start with a question from Derek, and what Derek asked is would a 12-team college football playoff be more positive or negative for Georgia? So this is a little bit of a different spin on this. We're looking at this from a Georgia-specific standpoint. So, Kurt, what's your take on this? Is the is a potential expansion of 12 teams in the playoff going to be more positive or more negative for the Dogs?
2: I think it'll be positive in the fact that you get to go to the playoffs and everything, but the one thing I will want to say is the whole mantra of making the playoffs isn't going to be what it is right now. So it's not... Making the playoffs is not going to be enough, especially if they go to 12. It's going to be how far do you consistently go deep into the playoffs. That's what I think is going to be more of a better measuring stick once you expand on it. But overall, I think it helps because especially like think of last year, if we got into the playoffs at the end of the season last year, we were going to be a dangerous team. I can't count the number of times where we get hot at the end of the season. Think back to 07 with Stafford Moreno and all those times you get hot and where all in that game setting, anything could happen.
0: If there's a 12 team playoff in 2007, we win it all. I'm going to put it out there. Now, I know that's a long time ago. It's almost 15 years ago, but we win it all in that year. Um, last year, I mean, like, I know I'm not saying we would have won it last year, but like you mentioned, teams getting hot. We were a much different team at the end of the season than we were for the vast majority of the year with once everybody got healthy, once JT Daniels became our quarterback. No, I'm interested. I want to go a little bit more into what you said there. When you're talking about how, like, the standard changes, it's not about getting in the playoffs, it's about advancing the playoffs. Are you talking about from, like, a Georgia standpoint, specifically, like Kirby Smart?
2: I think you have to say yes. Um, Right now, like all the time, we're like the fifth or sixth team, and you're right there, but still not enough. You know, people are still upset with Kirby, like we're going to get up the hump and everything. So then it would just be like, you know, it's not enough. Um, Just even if you're getting to the playoffs, right now winning it is what it's all about. Just getting to the playoffs is great and all, but it's not going to, like I say, it's not going to keep you employed, but it's going to be hard to be fired when you're making the playoffs and things like that. But just getting in, especially when it's expanded, would no longer be enough because it's the top 12, especially if it goes to 12, where I don't think that's as prestigious as it is where you say, okay, you make the Final Four or something. Just think back to uh, college basketball, the way they do March Madness. You see coaches fire all the time when they lose in the first or second round because it's not prestigious. Yes, they may have made the tournament, but to certain school standards, that's just not enough
0: that's an interesting that's an interesting point so you're saying like for a head coach it could potentially be a negative because it's going to be about advancing not just getting it. like getting there is not going to like get you an extension necessarily
2: yeah like it'll give you more options money wise and things like that to at least make it but i still don't know if it changes the fact that just making it's not enough you want to be in the final four you want to be in the championship like that's still going to be the main goal because just being in the top 12 isn't going to be enough but i mean yeah, it's still, it's, you still have the chance but i don't think it changes expectations.
0: That's a great point. That's, I didn't really think about it from that standpoint, but that's, that's a great point to make. And I, I'm with you here. I think it's, it's certainly more positive than it's negative for George. I mean, look, the more teams there are to get in the playoffs, the more likely we're going to get in, and that's a good thing. I don't think you can really argue against that. But I'll take it a step further. I think that we might actually – I think you can make an argument that we might end up being the big winner across the college landscape out of this whole playoff expansion deal. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like, well, I think there's two groups – yeah, I think there's two groups here – that are really going to stand to to benefit more than maybe other teams in college football. I think the biggest winners are going to be either the group of five programs who can go undefeated in a weaker conference, like let's say a Cincinnati or UCF who are good teams. I'm not saying they're not good teams. We saw Cincinnati last year. That's a good team. But the fact is they can go undefeated in a weaker conference and now have access to the college playoff, which they never were going to under the the four-team system. They were just simply never going to have access to it. So I think that is going to be one of the big winners out of this. And then I think the next big winner or group of winners out of this would be that tier of what I would call like borderline elite programs that are maybe just a slight notch below that top tier, which I would classify as like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. And I would probably put Oklahoma in there just because – They've been the playoffs so consistently. Now, I know a big part of that is the fact they played in the Big 12 and there's not as much competition there. Fair, but you say the same about Clemson. The difference is Clemson's actually won when they got in the playoffs. Oklahoma has not. But, I mean, you guys have probably heard the numbers. We threw the numbers out last year. 20 of the 26 college football playoff teams since the inception of the playoff have been either Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, or Oklahoma. You had Notre Dame in there, it's 22 out of 28, right? So I, I would say that right now that's probably the top tier – uh, and maybe you want to throw Notre Dame in there. That's fine since they've been there a couple of times. But I believe in that next tier, I think we are at the very top of that next tier, that tier that's just just inches away from kind of kicking the door down and jumping in that top tier. I would also throw programs in there that have been really close before, like Penn State. You know, They had an argument a couple of years back. LSU has been in there and won the whole thing, but it's only one time. I, I still kind of put them in that tier below as a consistent uh, – program. I would throw Notre Dame in there. They've been there a couple of times. There's circumstances there surrounding the fact they're not really in a conference, at least except for last year. And then maybe Florida, maybe Florida. I hesitate with Florida, but maybe. They've been been consistently good under Dan Mullen, so I'll give them that. But I think we're at the top of that next tier. Because now when we finish number five in the playoff rankings like we did two consecutive years in 2018, 2019, the first team not in the playoff, in a four-team playoff, now when we finish number five, we are getting in. And when you have the type of talent that we do, and Curtis is kind of alludes to what, or goes to what you were alluding to. If you get in and you have the kind of talent that we do with how we recruit, maybe you lost a game early. Maybe there were some injuries along the way, like we saw last year, but now you're in the playoff and, and you have the, when you have the talent that we have, you recruit like we do, you have a chance to be anyone once you get in. Now, the, I, sure, you can argue the number 12 seed might not have a real chance of winning the whole thing. Maybe they wouldn't. But you know what? A 5 seed does, or maybe a 9 seed Georgia last year who had to start Stetson Bennett for more than half the season, but now has JT Daniels, a quarterback, and is healthy again after that crazy rash of injuries. That team can win it all. I mean, there's no guarantee, but that team can win it all. I mean, throw this one out there, Curtis. Think back to the 2018 team, right? The 2018 team that was up on up late in the SEC title game on Alabama should have won that game. We didn't. We lost it. But I would still argue, yeah, we lost that game by a touchdown. We were absolutely as good as Alabama that year. We didn't win the game, but we were as good as they were. And that team ended up playing for the national title. The Alabama team did. I th- and I know they lost to Clemson. I think we were good enough to beat Clemson, too, on any given day in 2018. I really believe that. I can't guarantee it. But I think if we'd gotten into a playoff that season – we absolutely could have won it in 2018. No guarantee, no promises. We don't know how it would have played out, but we were good enough to potentially win it. There's no doubt. The margins between us and the teams that end up playing for the title, Alabama-Clemson, they were that small. And now with a 12-team 12, 12 team playoff, we get in and we can win it. I mean, you. Know, I'll go back again last year. Like, you don't think we had a legit chance to beat Bama? I'm not going to say that we were better than Bama, but we were good. At, like, let's say if we played Bama 10 times, we are going to have to beat them 3 or 4. It just takes one game. So I think we had a legit chance to beat Bam in a potential rematch with JT at quarterback. I mean, we beat them for a half, and then we imploded because of just so many missed opportunities by our quarterback. Again, like I said earlier, no guarantee, but we had a chance to win last year if we would have just gotten it. We probably want the better team. We were, we're not the best team throughout the entire season, but you get in a playoff, you get in a turn like that, you get hot, you have the talent that we have, you get healthy. Things can happen. Other teams get upset. You see in college basketball, the best team doesn't always win in college basketball. Gonzaga was the best team all year last year. They didn't win the whole thing, right? Because things happen. Things happen in, in the, in the uh, when you get into a tournament like that. Teams get upset. You get to play teams that aren't as good. So I think it's clearly a good thing for Georgia. Some people might not like the whole idea of what it means for college football. I disagree with that. I've said that many times in this show. Uh, in fact, I was advocating for a 12-team playoff last off season, And I actually brought up as recently as January 13th on the episode titled An Idiot's Guide to How Georgia Can Help Save College Football. I, I talked about a 12-team playoff and explained why I advocated that. I even laid out why we need to give the first four teams a bye in that scenario. Go check the records if you don't believe me. But this 12-team playoff is an idea that I've been on for over a year. People told me I was crazy when I was advocating for it then, so I am pumped that this is probably going to end up happening. I love this. I think it's a really, really good thing for Georgia. All right, we've got one more question here about this potential playoff expansion. I say potential because it's been proposed, and I think it's almost—it's very likely to pass and go through the next couple stages, but we don't know that for sure, for sure. So we still have to say like the proposed playoff expansion right now. But this is a good one. This is from Jonathan. So Jonathan has a couple thoughts here. Kurt, he wants to get our thoughts on these. Uh, So Jonathan says, I love almost everything about the likely 12-team playoff, except, like many, I hate the idea that the top four conference champions don't get a home playoff game. If they must, quote-unquote, protect the bowls, why can't the bowl co-host or sponsor the home game? Like, for example, the Cotton Bowl at Sanford Stadium. It's an interesting concept. And then rotating some of the smaller bowls into first and second round home games to make them more relevant than they are if they're not part of the playoff at all. What are your thoughts? Think about that, Curtis. It's an interesting idea. So
2: what he's asking is if you win a conference championship, you should be able to host a game?
0: Yeah, so like the way it's – the proposal right now is that the top four seeds will be the four highest-ranked conference champions. But the way it's set up is that those four teams will never get to host a playoff game because the only round that's going to be hosted is the first round, so it would be the teams seeded five through eight would host teams nine through 12. And then the next round, the quarterfinals would be at a neutral site, like a bowl game site. And he doesn't particularly like that. What do you think about it? Are you okay with that? The fact that we have the the quarterfinals now also potentially at a neutral site venue? Yeah, I am okay with that. Cause like the fact
2: of the matter is it got to protect it with the fact that if you're going to say no one can host in that situation, then it shouldn't be, where some get to make money while others can't.
0: But isn't that part of like preserving the, the value of the regular season? You get to earn that? Your program earns that by getting a top-four seed?
2: I could see that argument, but the thing is, they have so much money invested in these bowls that that's what's more important to them. That's why even when they went to the playoff expansion, they kept more or less the, the, the format from the BCS championship uh, in the way that the bowls
0: With the new Year's six
2: broke Because that's what was where the money is, and they're not going to get rid of that.
0: But do you have to? I don't think you have to have the bowls to make money off this. I think you can just. I think it's the it's the game themselves. The TV networks want. That's the ESPN wants. That Fox wants. They don't necessarily. I don't think. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here. I would just don't think they necessarily care that a game's called the Cotton Bowl. So that's they're going to pay more money for that when it's the same well, two teams playing. on a we, on a home site. When you, think,
2: when you think back when we beat Oklahoma, that was a great game. But what made it even more mystical and all these other adjectives you want to use was the fact that it was at the Rose Bowl and changed the experience even more. If it was at UGA or if it was at Oklahoma, it would have been a great game. We still would be talking about it now. But the fact that it was played at the Rose Bowl, a place that we never really get to play at, made it just that more magical.
0: That's true. That adds the mystique of that game, for sure. And that's why I'm okay with that situation.
2: Because maybe some, like the Cotton Bowl and some of these may not be crazy cool, like the Rose Bowl and things like that. But it just adds to the to the atmosphere.
0: But okay, let's say you have a home playoff game in Death Valley. The final the quarterfinals are in Death Valley at night, like like LSU Tiger Stadium. Like you're, that's not going to be like a, a magical environment for a playoff game. No,
2: I think it would. I, I honestly have no problem with it. But I think the fact of the matter is that it's more of trying to get onto a region. I, I think one thing too is it helps with your regional getting out there and showing it. Um, to the
0: guaranteeing certain games, certain playoff games will be played in different parts of the country,
2: exactly like yeah. where, what you're reaching. Uh, because think back to when Alabama played Georgia, I don't think you saw the west coast and people like that, especially, especially excited, even when it was played in Atlanta. Like, if that had been played in the west coast, it may have made things a little bit different.
0: Well, the next year was played in basically San Francisco and Santa Clara, and it was a disaster because nobody cares out there. That's well, yes, I mean, that's Santa Clara, yeah, yeah, I, yeah exactly. I, yeah, that's fair, fair, yeah. Fair um all right so here's what i would say i agree with you like yeah the rose bowl like that was incredible i'll say this about the rose bowl it was a freaking nightmare getting that game like logistically it's a freaking nightmare like the day everything around the rose bowl sucks it sucks you're you have the rose bowl parade whatever but like there's nothing to do there. there's really no nowhere to tailgate you gotta you gotta take the train from la it's and i don't like la that's just me like everything around the game sucked from a a fan's perspective from my fan perspective maybe other people had different experiences i didn't necessarily like at the stadium the stadium itself sure it's it's old and traditional but it's a freaking dump man like there's not even like concession stands aren't even in the stadium if you go outside the stadium they're like a ringer on the stadium to get like concessions to go to the bathroom like it's an absolute dump sure you can say well man that's history it's historic sure yeah it's historic but it doesn't have any modern amenities whatsoever maybe that's part of the mystique. Sure. Uh, but I'm, I, it was magical, like the game itself. It was the, – the, fa- yes, the yes, that was awesome. That was incredible. So I'm okay with keeping the bowl system involved in the semifinals like it has been. I don't see any reason why that's a problem. We, we're used to that. That's fine. I have – where I have a pro- – this is my biggest problem with this entire proposal. My biggest issue with the entire proposal is I believe the quarterfinal sites, the quarterfinal games need to be on college campuses. That's, a, and that's me, that's a personal thing. Now, and look, because here's the thing, like, when you already bite the bullet and say, okay, well, the first round is going to be on campus. There's no really, there's really no acceptable reason why the quarters can't be either. And, and yes, I, I also agree with what Jonathan, I, I agree with you, Jonathan. The top four do deserve the opportunity to host a playoff game. That's, that alone is a good enough reason to have the quarterfinals on campus. But for me, it's about more than just that. And Curtis, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Let me just say this, and I want to get your input on this too. But here's what I'll say is like, at what point do fans factor into all of this? Like we are, after all, fans, I, I'm not going to say that we're what the entire college football empire depends on, but we're at least one of the elements. Without the fans, no, there's no TV money coming in because nobody's watching, right? And we just, as fans, I just think we get shat upon over and over and over. It was, and let me explain why. It was already borderline prohibitively expensive to go attend all these neutral site playoff games with a four-team playoff. So let's say back in 2017, what we had to do, right? We had the SEC title game, had to buy tickets for that, all right? We had the semifinals out in Pasadena. Awesome experience, very expensive. Then we had the national title game, right? I spent personally, just, I'm just saying personally. I don't want to say exactly how much I spent. It was a lot. I spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for our na- our national title run. Probably irresponsibly so, but I did it anyway. That's what fans do. I spent a lot of money for our national title run, and that was when two of those games were in Atlanta, the SEC title game and then the national title game. Every year, the national title game is not going to be Atlanta. We got fortunate there. But what if it was 2018 and we had to do the SEC title game in Atlanta, had to buy tickets for that if you can't get it through the university. Then you got to go to the, the Orange Bowl or the Cotton Bowl. You go like this year, the Orange Bowl, it's in the Orange Bowl this year too as well. And it's on New Year's Eve, right? I'm, I've been looking at hotels, trying to get a hotel. Astronomical. It's just crazy just to get a freaking hotel. And then you got and then in 2018, they had to go to San Francisco to play the game. We're talking about $10,000 easy, for two people, if you do the SC title game, the Orange Bowl or Cotton Bowl, and then out to San Francisco for the national title game. And trust me, guys, seriously, I've already priced it out. I have reservations for all the playoff sites this year. Trust me, it ain't cheap. It's not cheap. I want to go there, but I'm not exactly excited about spending that kind of money potentially. And newsflash, guys, if they do end up expanding to 12, we're going to be in the playoffs just about every single year. Like We would have been in the last four years straight if we had a 12-team playoff the last four or five years. And now we want to add another expensive neutral site game for fans just to keep the bowls involved, keep them happy. Why? I got why. And you're right, Chris. It's about money, and you're totally right about that. And I'll tell you why. It's because the people who run the college playoff, it's cronyism, man. If the people who run the college playoff, they are buddies with the guys who run the big bowls. They rub. They just, you know, they're all buddy buddy dealing with each other they want to help out their golfing buddies that's what it's about they are choosing them over the average fan and personally i got a problem with that i got a problem with that what, what do you think or am i crazy here am i going too far saying they're just completely screwed over the fans yet again no you're right the fact is like you mentioned they just don't care about the fans it's as simple as that and they don't it, it, absolutely money talks and they and and like i again it's cronyism man and i Someone who's not like, I'm not an elite dude. I'm just a kind of a, an average guy, love my life, but I'm just an average guy. I'm, I'm cool with that. That's kind of what I want to be. I just have a problem with these like wealthy elites just are helping each other out and it's at the expense of the little man. And that's kind of what I see happening here. I got a problem with that. I really, really do. And there's no reason for that. And here's an idea. Look, I know that the bowls are traditional and you want to keep them involved and, and they can be good for communities and all that kind of thing. Like they're, I get that. But here's an idea. I'm just spitballing here, Curtis. Here's an idea I've been toying around with. If you want to keep the bowls involved, get creative here. Why do the bowl games have to be at the end of the year? They're just exhibitions anyway, essentially. Why don't we get creative and move them to the beginning of the season? Like I mean, like create like fun neutral site matchups to open the season. We already have a bunch of neutral site games in Atlanta, Dallas, Charlotte, Orlando, just to name a few. So just expand that and give more teams the opportunity to kick off the season. In, in, a, in a festive environment against a great opponent, the Bulls get money from that. They stay alive. You're just moving from the end of the year to the beginning of the year. Is that crazy? No. I mean, it wouldn't have the same appeal to I mean, it. it's, not, it's not a reward
2: like yeah, it has been for teams. It's not much on the line, but I sure. get what you're saying.
0: But how much is on the line if you aren't in the playoff anyway? Not much. Yeah. Right. So I think if you look at, no, this is not going to happen, but I, I think, you know, let's get creative here. I think it's a win-win if you move to the beginning of the season, because the players win, they, they still get to go to the bowl games. They get their bowl swag. Fans get to see better competition open the season. Honestly, the bowls would probably make more money because the attendance would probably be better at the beginning of the year. Cause it's, it's still, it's a meaningful regular season game and not a glorified exhibition. So maybe even the TV revenue would be greater. So like I'm just, all I'm saying, and I know that's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen, but. I'm just saying you get creative. There are ways to keep the bowls around without having to force fans to trudge along to all these neutral sites week after week after week and essentially bankrupt themselves. Because that's what's gonna happen. Like if if we had I mean if we have to go to the quarterfinal game, let's say we have a quarterfinal game and it's in Miami. Okay. All right, Miami, cool, fun. Go to the quarterfinal game, probably drop easily two to three grand for that game. And let's say the semifinal games out in Pasadena. Cool. Awesome. Fun. Let's drop another three or four grand there. Then the national title game is in new Orleans or Indianapolis. I mean, you're dropping 10 plus thousand dollars. If you want to go to all those games and guys, I know you can say, well, you don't have to go to all the games. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way one way or another. I would just prefer to not have to spend all that money. And yeah, I know that if you have games at home sites, someone, some fan base is going to have to travel, but one of the fan bases doesn't. So like it helps at least a, a portion of the fan bases out there. So I, I don't know, man. That's that's my big issue with it. So I, I'm kind of with you there, Jonathan. That's not something I'm I'm overly excited about. And I and I, I hope that when it goes to the next couple of, of steps here in the process, that's one thing that they start to explore maybe potentially changing. We'll see. I don't have much faith in that, but because money usually wins out. But hopefully they'll at least try to look at potentially changing that.
1: Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
0: All right. Next up, we got a, a recruiting question from Sam. Appreciate it, Sam. Uh, this happened this week, actually, a couple of days ago, Curtis. I'm sure you saw this. But Sam asked with Georgia product Michael Williams committing to USC. As actually the real USC out in Southern California over the dogs. Who are some targets we should keep an eye on in the 2022 class with defensive line being a huge position of need? I agree, Curtis. That I, I'm here. I'm totally with Sam on this. Demons line is a big position of need. We're going to lose a lot of big pieces after this year, so we got to shore up this position now with Michael Williams off the board at least for now. Who are you looking at the defensive line position that we could potentially land and, and kind of end up with a, with a class that we'd be satisfied with?
2: Well I think you have to begin with Travis Shaw. Um I think that's a no-brainer. Um yeah. person to go after. And then after that it get does get a little bit more sticky. But if I'm really looking around the um
0: I mean Walter uh, Nolan, I mean top yeah, 5 Walter prospect, Nolan, right?
2: Yeah, definitely a big guy that you're really looking at.
0: And I'm not, no. look, I'm not saying And I'm a trying to think, think of on.
2: like true D tackles, not the defensive ends per se, which is a lot of what you're seeing. Right. Um, but those are the two that jump off right away at you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I look, I, I know it's going to sound like sour grapes. I know, but. I mean, I have a whole list because I've been trying to put together some recruiting stuff do a top 10 list here for long. And so I've been just watching tape after tape or tape on huddle of all these guys. And so I've got a whole list right now of notes, all these different players. And I'm pulling up my my to tackle guys right now. And here's literally what I have. These are my, I got four bullet points for Michael Williams. So I got, he's at according to 247, according to 247 composite. He's number 23 overall, 6'5", 200, 265 pounds. Here's note number one, very undersized for defensive tackle right now. If you, I mean, he's 265. If you watch the guy on take guys, pull up his tape if you haven't seen his tape. He's way too thin. Note number two, at that size, probably a five tech defensive end right now. At that size, it's all I can play. He cannot play on in the interior right now. And he's that's not what we you can certainly no. add 30 or 40 pounds, sure. But he's got a long way to go to get there. So right now, he is not ready to play defensive tackle in the SEC. I mean, honestly, if you watch him play, if you watch his tape, he basically plays as a glorified outside linebacker right now. That's what he does. He is a good pass rusher, but that's not what, like, that's not what we would recruit him for. So, all I'm saying is, I just haven't seen him do the things on tape at the high school level that we would ask him to do here at Georgia because he's not going to be athletic enough to play on the on the edge for us. He's just not when going to not a, a
2: lot. These, realistically, a lot of these rankings are going to tr- change tremendously with these camps opening up a lot of these kids, a lot of these scouts couldn't even truly go to camps. They were just watching the film and seeing it. And that can be deceiving based on, you know, what competition they play at and all those things.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, last year, all these guys, they didn't even watch these guys. So, heck, some of these guys didn't even play last year. They didn't even play. So the rankings, I'm not saying Mike Williams is not a good player. He is a good player. I'm just saying if you're looking – if you were counting on that guy, I know he's a Georgia product the Hardaway, but if you were counting on him to come to be an answer on the defensive line right away next year, maybe, maybe he can grow into that. But I'm just saying if you look at the tape, he, I have not seen him do anything on the interior of the defensive line the way we would ask him to do it when he gets to Georgia next year. I just haven't seen it from him. Again, not saying he can't do it. There's just no evidence of it. Good pass rusher, plays pretty much outside linebacker for his high school team. He's good at that at the high school level. He's just bigger and stronger, more athletic than the guys he's playing against. But that's not going to be the case in the SEC. So I just, I don't know. Like he's kind of a tweener right now. So I know he's the guy who's an in state product that we were looking at. And he's a top 25 guy right now. So you want him. So it seems like a huge loss. And maybe it will not be a huge loss. But I'm just saying, guys, there's like, this is not something that we can't overcome. Right. And you're going to lose, guys. And the deal with him, his brother plays at USC. That, you know, it's tough to win out over family. That's just the bottom line. It's tough. But there's plenty of other options. Now we got to land the other options. If we don't land the other options, then this will so that would certainly magnify Michael Williams going to USC and it would become more of a loss. But you mentioned Travis Shaw, Curtis. That's the first one that comes to mind for me. Honestly, if I'm ranked, because I've been trying to work on this, uh, if I'm ranking my, my top 10 most wanted players in this 2022 class, Travis Shaw might be number one for me. Number one, he's a position of need. Number two, he's a freak, man. And he can, he's the one, he, he's the one guy that we're recruiting right now. The defensive tackle that I think outside of bear Alexander, who's now decommitted gone, it's going to go to texas a and i A&M. I'm pretty sure he's, he's a guy that can kind of fill in as a zero tech nose guard for Jordan Davis, Six five, three ten, right now has room to add plenty more weight to that frame. Um, He's got a massive tree trunkish lower half. It's the top 10 prospect national at North Carolina, we just made his top four cutoff. I think it was uh us clemson north carolina and north carolina ANT. and uh, t throwing some love there but uh clemson might be the favorite maybe but i'm not gonna count ever count kirby smart out i'm really never gonna do that so travis shaw 65310 number 10 number nine overall and 247 composite that's the guy to watch for that's the guy i really want of course walter nolan we've been recruiting him heavily he's gonna be he's been visiting he's certainly listening We have got a shot there walter nolan's incredible man i mean. I mean, let's go back to Travis Shaw real quick, though. Thick lower half. And the thing I love about Travis Shaw, he can anchor. He's an anchor guy that can replace Jordan Davis, and he moves really well for that size. I think right now, yeah, he's a little lighter, but he's more athletic than Jordan Davis is right now. He does play with some inconsistent pad level at times. which is not uncommon for guys that play that position. That's something that you can work on, but – Really high on him. Walter Nolan's is incredibly explosive athlete at 6'4", 300. He's the number two overall prospect in 247 composite. Really versatile, can play inside, can play outside as well, can move around and do different things. Reminds me of, of Jalen Carter some. Powerful, explosive, has really advanced hand work right now. He's a guy that's really advanced as a high school player with how he uses his hands. Now, granted, when he's, you watch him play, he's playing against guys with very little resistance there. But he is a disruptive force on the defensive line. It's going to be a tough pool, but watch it. That's a guy certainly that we're in it for. Uh, Christian Miller is another guy that visited USC not that long ago, and he is uh, certainly a guy the USC could potentially also get, but I like him as well, number 118 overall, the 247 composite, 64, 285. Kind of reminds me of Tyler Clark from a couple years ago when you watch him play. He's not huge, but he's plenty big enough. Um, he's athletic and explosive for an interior interior guy. Not quite big enough right now, but he's at the frame to get to about 300 pounds easily to play that three tech. So there's a couple names for you. Uh, what about this one, Curtis? It, he might be more of like a five tech guy, but Shamar Stewart's a guy that was here on campus this week. You think we got a shot for him? I think we have a really good
2: shot, but like you said, he's more of a five tech. Um, yeah. And right now, I don't think that's the biggest need. I think a lot of people, especially when you're talking about uh, Michael Williams, like uh, overvaluing the impact right now because it's not truly a position of need as, as much, per se, as we are on the three-tech.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I'm not, I'll am not. i say the five-tech five defense, five it's not not of need. Like, we do need those guys, but we need some guys in the interior probably more right now. I think that's fair. But, I mean, Shamar Stewart's elite, man. He's a top-ten prospect, explosive, incredibly long, very physical at the point of attack, uses his hands well, takes on blockers with really good leverage. I mean, he's, he's the real deal. Not only is he crazy athletic, but he also is really good – from a technical standpoint as well, which is not always necessarily the case with these guys. A lot of these guys that are just freakishly athletic, they just dominate that way. Don't really worry about technique at the high school level, but he's um, he's a total package, man. I'd love to get him as well. So there's a couple names for you. Christian Miller, Shamar Stewart, Travis Shaw, Walsh Nolan, a couple guys to watch out for. All right, moving on here, Curtis. I saw this hit, I think it was over the weekend last weekend. I want to say, at least within the past week. So Corey asked, What do you think was behind D Rob's transfer? And how big of a loss is this for this year's team? So Kurt, I know you were texting me about this. I think it was maybe Friday or Saturday. What do you first, what do you think was behind D. Rob's transfer? And as Corey asked, how big of a loss is that for this year's team?
2: Um, I think more than anything it was. Playing time and getting exposure for d robbing mean, honestly, I don't blame the kid. I think this was one of the, you know, many times with these kids, especially lately, have entered the transfer portal. There have been some ill will, and I think there's none when it comes to D-Rob. fact of the matter is he just never truly developed. I think he was overvalued out of high school with the recruiting rankings and never truly lived up to the hype. And I don't think it's anything with the kid not working hard or being a bad apple or anything like that. From what I've heard, he's nothing but a good guy. Um, I just don't think that he, you know, truly developed into what everyone thought he would. And let's be honest, he got passed up for the most part on the death chart. Uh, That's
0: that's what happened.
2: I think that was the biggest thing is he trying to go somewhere he can get exposure. And um, it's not like our offense is running the ball every time. So it's not has nothing to do with it. Um, And then when it how big of a loss, I think you're I'm not trying to be mean, but if you're sitting here saying it's a huge loss, then. I have to question your judgment because the fact of the matter is even last year with our injuries, he still wasn't getting that much playing time.
0: I mean, third um, string, maybe this yeah, year, maybe
2: after Rose, and people like that got hurt, you know, George was still missing time. Um, and yeah. yet he still wasn't getting a ton of PT time. So if you're sitting here telling us it's a huge loss and I really, like I'm not trying to be mean, but I do question your judgment and the fact that why do you think it was a huge loss? Um, and then especially with Rose, supposed to be back. Blaylock's supposed to be back. And there's hints of Pickens maybe coming back at some point in the year. And then you throw in the fact that you've got a Rick Gilbert. Um, Jermaine Burton's expected to take a big step. He, he Even in his freshman year, he lived up to more than anything D-Rob d A.D. Mitchell. Yeah, A.D. Mitchell. All these kids, like, I don't see it being a big loss. And that's why I wish D-Rob nothing but the best.
0: Yeah, I'll say this. I, I, I agree with everything you said about, right there about D-Rob. I, um, I am not mad at the kid at all, man. I, I, I am, I'm rooting for him. I wish him the absolute best. Um, everyone I've ever talked to about D-Raw, I've never met him, but everyone I've ever talked to has had nothing but incredible things to say about him. He's just a great young man, very respectful, hard worker, great teammate, great, just member of the, of the Athens community. Just, just an awesome young man who we all should be rooting for. But as you said, Chris, reality is he just kind of got recruited over here and it's not from a lack of effort. The guy works hard. That's I've always heard that. It's, you know, he's got great straight line speed. He was a little overvalued in terms of the rankings coming out of high school. and That's not his fault. Um, sometimes they just they get it wrong. And he, he had great speed. He still does. But he doesn't move super well laterally. Not the biggest, strongest guy. Not a big frame at all. And uh, that's just kind of player he is. And that's okay. He wants, I understand. He's his last shot. Last shot to play. He wants to go find some more where he can play and maybe, maybe get some exposure and show what he can do and maybe get a shot at an NFL roster and I you can't fault the guy he's been here he's he, he's not leaving after one year he's been here working trying trying This is his final go around so absolutely I do not blame him and I keep I, Sekers I wish him the absolute best as for how big of a loss this is I mean you nailed it I mean how much is this guy going to play this year he wasn't going to play much without it, barring injuries I mean even like you said even with injuries last year he still didn't play all that much it just hasn't made that much of an impact now we have all these guys that were ahead of him last year they're a year older a year more experienced and we expect him to, and you throw in Gilbert, you throw in AD Mitchell, and we expect him to be a major impact this year. Like, nuts, no, he's a nice death piece. It's good to have those guys. His injuries happen in the SEC, but I hate to say it because he's such a good young man, but I don't think we're going to miss him all that much on the field. Maybe in the locker room, but not all that much on the field. But still, absolutely, again, wish him nothing but the best
1: 100%. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads All
0: right, moving on here. Glenn has a good question. Curtis, I'm excited about this. So Glenn says, uh obviously Josh Brooks's new truck and field coach hire was a home run, but in the bigger picture. What does it tell you about Josh Brooks and how he will operate? Kirk, this is a huge hire. People were very much, uh, I don't want to say up in arms, but upset about the fact that Petros was moving on, a former uh, track and field coach, because as was very well documented, he was not happy with our lack of facility upgrades for track and field. And so he decided to move on. And you and I even did a whole episode on, on talking about whether Georgia's athletic department was truly committed to excellence, really Coming out of the fallout of the Petro stuff, so Josh goes out and he hires—I mean, a, literally a a coach that just won national title last weekend and Carol Smith Gilbert from USC. What does it tell you about Josh Brooks? Um, I like the hire,
2: honestly. Um, it gives me some you know hope going forward when he has to make other hires because this is the one of the first times George has really gone out and gotten a proven winner uh, when it came to a hire. Most of the time, you see them getting people that are on staff or have been a part of Georgia before. And this is the first time that it's really not the story. Um, so it does give me some encouragement and hope that going forward that he's going to try, if he has to make changes or that he'll show that he's committed to winning and bringing in winners and not just developing people and hoping that, I mean, you might see it soon in gymnastics where Cuppets Carter has not, you know, we had a high expectations or hasn't truly lived up to them quite yet. And if, uh, and if this doesn't work out, it might be time to try to find a proven winner instead of going with someone that was on staff before or someone that has connections.
0: Someone that was a Georgia great gymna- gymnast. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I hope that works out for Courtney. I really do. She was actually a gymnast when I was. Uh, yeah, in and no, I, I watched no her a lot. Feel
2: towards her, but that's one thing that one you know program you're hearing there could really? be a change in the future, and
0: that oh, I don't know, maybe basketball. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah,
2: especially Georgia basketball, but places where we used to be really good and we just haven't lived up to our expectations recently, especially when you turn to gymnastics and things like that.
0: Yeah. Look, I think this is an incredible hire hiring Carol Smith Gilbert from USC. What this tells me about Josh Brooks. I mean, this is something that I already knew. Um, I don't know. I've never met him as another person I've never met, but I know some people that do know him and everything I've ever been told about him is that this guy wants to win. He, he is a, he, he's a guy that is very much, and of course all ladies want to win, but he's willing to do, what it takes to win, not not like over not over the line, out of bounds kind of stuff, but he's going to be aggressive and doing what it takes to win your the University of Georgia. And I think it also shows that he that he means business in a way that maybe Greg McGarity never really did. I think McGarity unfairly gets criticized maybe a little bit too much. I think a lot of that is fair, but some of it's a little bit over the top uh, because you got to also understand the the, the the nature of the beast with our athletic directors. You got to look at our institutional setup at UGA all of in every position every every university the the setup is a little bit different the way it's structured but our athletic directors are almost it's really much it's it's a position it's kind of the, the creature of our university president and you kind of have to keep that guy happy and so there's always so much that you can do but i do love that brooks was as aggressive as he was and really literally went out and got about as good of a replacement for petrus as you possibly could two time national yeah, because- championship winner well, when you think of McGarity's last couple of hires hires, um,
2: baseball, it's turned around. But Kirby, I mean, he didn't even make that hire. He's more or less made forward. That was not,
0: yeah, that wasn't a McGarrity thing. He just didn't stand the light.
2: Uh, and so you look at Tom Crean and right now that's one person you're like, okay. That's I will say
0: here. that, that McGarity was trying to shoot for the fences <laughs> relative to what our program is and was with the Tom, the Tom Crean hire. But that just hasn't really worked out at t- to this point. Well, then you, and you bring in, like, you mentioned gymnastics. I mean, I love Courtney Capetz. Uh, I really, really, really want her to be successful. But that was kind of like, hey, let's bring in someone from the old days that will work with Suzanne Yachtlin, because she's, Suzanne Yachtlin coached her, and she can kind of learn on the job. And it's kind of like, well, we have, the like, traditionally, historically, the best gymnastics program in the country. So we're going to, I know she was a great gymnast, but we're going to hire someone with no college coaching experience to take over the, like, the blue blood of all blue blood gymnastics programs. I don't know. I mean, I know it's an in-house hire. So it's things like that. Like it shows me that Josh wants to win and maybe he'll operate a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more aggressively than Greg McGardy did, which I think is much needed. And it's a very good thing. All right, moving on. Here, we've got a couple more. We're going to try to get to about five minutes here. Curtis, we're going to get out of here. Um, next one up uh, is at his Twitter handle. Uh, it's in Arabic again. So I don't, I, I feel like an idiot because I can't read it. Um, but it's at H629Z. Thanks for the question, man. We always appreciate it. This guy's been a long-time listener. really, really appreciate it. But he asks, a great question too. What do you think outside linebacker looks like in 2022? Of course, we're loaded right now, right, with Nolan Smith and Adam Anderson, but he's right. Next year, it's 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 MJ Sherman and who in the rotation. I thought people were saying Jalen saying Walker might be an inside linebacker, but we run a four-man rotation. So, Kurt, that's a great question. We talked about line, the interior of the defensive line being in position of me next year. So is outside linebacker. We've got to refill the coffers in a big way. Who are you looking at next year to be our outside linebackers outside of MJ Sherman? Ooh, um, that's tough
2: right now. Um, I think MJ Sherman's definitely, as you said, was the guy. Um, someone I think could be interesting is Dumas Johnson, but I think they're looking at him at inside linebacker.
0: And Jalen Walker, the guy that we got coming in this 22, 2022 class, he could potentially play, play out there. I think it depends on how his body develops over the next year. But I think right now he's more of an inside linebacker. I don't yeah, know. I agree
2: with that. I do. What, agree, okay, though.
0: here's a name Zavian Sori. I think he, he's, yeah, a, he's I think right, right now he's an outside now, linebacker.
2: Yeah, I think that guy is made to play outside yeah. linebacker.
0: And he's one of those guys coming to high school, like you can play inside, you can play outside. So could Smell It Looks like Smell right now is playing inside. And Xavier and Sori was injured in the spring, and he's kind of slated to play outside right now. So, I think mean, right now the two guys are Sherman and Sori, but we are, and those guys are elite prospects, but we haven't really seen anything from them, and we're short on depth there. So, we've got to load up in a big way in this class. That's something I'm watching very, very, very closely as we move on with this 2022 recruiting class. That's a great question, but you're right. It's Sherman and Xavier and Sori and Chaz Chambliss. Like, I think I, I've heard some really good things about Chambliss. He's got a really high motor, I think people are sleeping on him a little bit think he can at the very least be a really good depth piece there, but I don't know if he's like a dominant outside linebacker right now. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's, he works really hard and he's got, he's got more talent. We want to give him credit for, but I don't know if he's like an, he's not Adam Anderson type guys not a Nolan, Nolan, uh, Nolan Smith kind of guy. Like he's just not. So I don't know. So those three guys are there. Sherman, Sory, and Chas Chambliss. And then whoever we land in this class, which needs to be some good players. All right. I think we got time for one more question here, Curtis. It goes from Cliff real quick, about two minutes. Uh, Cliff asks, uh, no, you know we always appreciate Cliff. He asks, how does JT Daniels compare with the great passers we've seen in modern college football and what areas of his game need improvement to take Georgia to the top? What do you think, or where does he need to improve?
2: Um, Probably his accuracy on the deep ball. I think that's going to be the number one thing. because I think That's the very, obvious one, yeah. Yeah, he's very accurate when it comes to the intermediate throw, Um, so I think that's where I'm going to go with him, the deep ball. Um, he's
0: incredibly accurate on the run. He doesn't get enough credit for that. You roll him out of the pocket, he's incredibly accurate on the move.
2: Yeah, he is. And I think, yeah, he, and he, people don't, and I think people wonder how smart he is. He take, he's one of the few quarterbacks we've had in a while that's willing to take the check down if it's there um, to at least get something more than nothing. And I think that's yep. one of the big things about him, but I, yeah, I would really just work say his say the deep ball and probably build some more rap, rapport with the receivers, um, which it seems that he is.
0: And you're right. He is one to take the check down. It's kind of where he does do that well, but he also there's sometimes where he just holds the ball too long and gets lit up. You saw it in the, in the bowl game last year. So that's, and, and, and just when he, in those situations, instead sometimes he just tries to make too much happen when he's feeling that pressure and just turns the ball over. You saw that fumble in the, in the peach bowl, just protecting the football a little bit more consistently is something that I would really like for him to work on. You're right about the deep ball accuracy. That's more of a mechanical thing that we've talked about. So hopefully they're doing this off season now with the knee injury. Hopefully behind him, that's something that he can work on and, and polish up. But yeah, I think deep ball accuracy, clear number one. Maybe put a little more zip on the ball, throwing it out there, holding on the ball too long. Just cut down on that. Maybe a lot of awareness there. But yeah, I mean, he does a lot of things really well. He's decisive with the ball. I like the fact that he's, I mean, he's a gunslinger, but not too careless with the ball. Trying to throw the ball in the tight windows, he will from time to time. But yeah, really that accuracy and just protecting the football and getting out of his hands a little bit quicker. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA Podcast. We have a lot of great stuff in store for you next week. I will be back with our final scheme theme episode of the offseason. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a final scheme theme episode focusing on Eric Gilbert and his potential impact on the Georgia offense, part two of that, focusing on how we can be similar to what Alabama has been doing with so much success offensively the past couple years and we're also going to run a scheme theme mailbag episode where i get to all the other questions that have been sitting because we got a lot of scheme theme related questions and i just i was hoping hoping i would have a chance to work them all in but obviously we've had to do a couple of emergency podcasts and different news items that popped up we had to cover so we're going to try to throw all those in or at least as many as we possibly can into a scheme theme mailbag which should be a lot of fun so we'll have that for you guys not next week but a couple of weeks but next week we're going to have that final full-on scheme team episode and at the end of the week we will also be kicking off our annual and very popular summer scouting the enemy series and of course we're starting a week one with the clemson Tigers, so that should be a lot of fun as well great stuff in store for you guys the rest of the way but thanks for listening hope you guys have an awesome weekend for curtis i'm tyler and as always go dogs.